Hello and welcome to episode four of the HD Lockdown Pod, the podcast that will help you out with your weekly work and add a little bit of other bits and pieces to get you through uh, the lockdown. Um, I'm Mr. Eichlestam and joining me today is Mr. DeSalvo. Hello. Uh, Mr. Lawton. Hello. And Mr. Patterson. Hello. So uh, how are we all? Uh, yeah, good, thank you. Plodding along. Better running, better reading, better watching stuff on TV. Very little changes during the lockdown, does it? DeSalvo? Uh, yeah, we are now completing our third jigsaw puzzle. and This has become <laughs> the trend here these days. In between decorating and learning the piano, I'm still on the same sheet as last week, I'm afraid with that. And I went running yesterday. I didn't see Mr. Lawton, but I went running as well. With regards to the piano, is this you in preparation for uh, a musical number that we might get to look forward to soon? I think it's to make me a bit more employable at Baba. <laughs> you can branch out and diversify across the curriculum, yeah? That's right, yes. Uh, Mr Patterson, what have you been up to in the lockdown? Anything different? Anything new? Hey, not much, unfortunately. Um, started reading my, or rereading the Young Stalin book by Simon Sebag Montefiore, um, which my A-level students will know uh, is one of my all-time favourites, and I constantly talk about it. So I've in all my boredom, I've fallen back into the arms of an old friend. This is uh, the young Stalin who has the, the famous photograph of him looking particularly attractive, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I strongly recommend everyone to go out and Google image search young Stalin. The man is a fox. He cuts quite the dashing figure, doesn't he? Yeah. I think he also, he also trained to be a priest. Was that right? Or he wanted to be a priest? A priest and a published poet. And a bank robber. A priest, poet, bank robber, and then kind of bloodthirsty dictator. You know, you uh, mm -hmm. uh, choose your doom. Um, right, so on today's show, on episode four, we have the return of the now infamous uh, quiz, uh, Mysterious Country. We take a little look at the life and times of uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, for history students. Uh, another trip down Geography Corner, looking at uh, global inequality and governance. Uh, the 92nd challenge makes the long-awaited return with uh, Mr. Patterson attempting to talk to us about seismic hazards for 90 seconds. Good luck there. And language liaisons uh, looks at the origins of stereotypes. And of course, we'll take a few of your questions towards the end of the pod as well. Um, just uh, another shout out before we get going. Please spread the word, um, pass it on to fellow students, anyone who's interested, uh, anyone who's got an hour to kill. Uh, send them the podcast, send them the link. Please keep sending your questions, comments, suggestions, anything that you think that we should be talking about. We're quite happy to, to take it on board and, and possibly uh, have a chat about it. And also, Mr. Lawton, you've got some uh, some news for us. Yeah, so we mentioned about there being a HD lockdown quiz, and uh, we've finally got the Google system at Bower to allow us to stream a quiz out. So we're doing a test run on Friday. But then the quiz for students to log in and be able to actually take part in, you'll all receive a link uh, through your email addresses. But uh, that will be taking place on Sunday. That's this Sunday at 7 p.m. So that's Sunday, the 26th of April, in case you're listening back in the future uh, at 7 p.m. Yeah, if you're listening uh, in, on the 27th of April, it's already happened and uh, you missed out. Okay, so... Coming up now is part two. We'll be back in just a few seconds. Okay, welcome back to uh, part two. And it's that time again. It's 
mysterious country. I'm using random data, using varied data. All random facts don't judge me. You can guess it when it's your time. I, I, I said, ooh, mysterious country. No, I can't stop until you are right. So welcome back everybody, Mysterious Country here for its third week and uh, a big shout out to those of you who are loving the theme music, uh, the singer on that is available for the recordings, it's a nominal fee. Now with this in mind, just to refresh our memories about uh, the rules of the game, uh, we're going to be presented with three Mysterious Countries, uh, the contestants are going to get seven clues maximum to try and guess what they are. At the moment, we've currently got the undefeated champion being Mr. Eichelstein winning the first two weeks in a row and dominating, I think, due to the sporting questions within these quizzes. So I've removed them now to try and see whether I can level level the playing field and uh, open it up to everybody. So uh, Mysterious Country number one. Clue one. Humans have been recorded here with artifacts going back 200,000 years into the Stone Age. Ike. Michaelston. France. No. I, I think uh, the time gives away the continent. Okay, all right, okay. That was an extra clue there. Not really. Okay. Death. Uh, Go on. Australia. Nope. Death. I'm yes. sure I said less and then Mr. Patterson replied anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with Egypt. No. Uh, number two. Uh, this country is landlocked. Ike. Sudan. No. Death. Clue. Ooh, Desalvo. Switzerland. No. Uh, three. Um, so inside this country, you can find part of, and excuse my pronunciation, the Drekensberg Mountains. Ike. Eichelstein. Austria. Now you've, you've already said about no. the continent thing. I oh, know. Silence descends. Number four. It, oh, yeah, I'll switch these around. Number four, it's a former British colony. Pat. Pat. Is it, oh, is it the one where the, the, the president is like, is being ousted? Lesona or something. Lesotho. No. No, Eichelstrom. Swaziland. No. In this this country borders Mozambique and South Africa. Yeah. Salva. Botswana. No. Pat. Patterson. Chad. That's too far north. Six, it's got an absolute monarchy with the current ruler who's a king having a constitutional power over everything. Ike, hasn't Swaziland changed its name to something else? And I don't know what it is, but it's that. I don't know. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> it's, you don't know, or you're just being... And uh, any other guesses in this round? No. Pat, Zanzibar. No. And seven, the final clue. This country was formerly known as Swaziland. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> this is disappointing, guys. Uh, Ike, uh, is it like Say Sewu or oh. You mean Eswatini? Mr. DeSalvo wins. 
He didn't say Des. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Eswatini. It's not an electronic country out there for those people who are getting confused. Right. Mysterious country number two. This country was discovered by the Lapita people. By the Lapita people. Yes. Lapland. <laughs> Good. But no cigar. Like right. Finland. No. Uh, number two, uh, this country is among the countries with the highest obesity rates on the planet. Right. Mm. The United States of America. No. Three, um, this country is part of an archipelago, an archipelago being a collection of islands. Um, oh, this is tricky. It's scratching time. Ah. Uh, Finland. No. I said Finland. Fin- oh, I'm not paying attention. <laughs> I'd- Finland is also not an island. I mean, um, you can't have another guest. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Four. Um, it's halfway between Hawaii and New Zealand. Ike, Fiji. No. Nope. Pat. Yeah. Uh, the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> nope. This country claimed independence in, or was given independence in 1997. Ike, Samoa. Yes, correct. Eichelston wins that point. So at the moment, it's uh, De Salvo 1, Eichelston 1, Patterson 0. Country number three. This country is part of the OPEC group, which is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Ike. Um, United Arab Emirates. No. And Hi. thank you for not saying Dubai or Abu Dhabi there, because that infuriates me. Patterson. Um, Vietnam. No. Um, this country is predominantly Muslim. Well, its people are predominantly Muslim. I don't think the rocks are. <laughs> um, Ike, um, Bahrain. No. Pat, uh, Turkmenistan. No. Death. Death. Azerbaijan. No. Good, good, good guess. Huh? Um, this one should help people out. Um, it's the 10th largest country in the world in terms of area. It's the 10th largest country in the world in terms of area. Pat. Patterson. Saudi Arabia? No. Ike. Uh, Iraq? No, it can't be Iraq. This country is known as the country of cherries and dates. Very good for a single person like me. (laughs) Death. De Salva. Morocco. No. The 10th biggest country in the world and yet none of us can... Yeah, uh, no. But it is. It's a it's a predominantly Muslim country. Go on, Pat. Did you say? Yeah, Patterson. Uh, Algeria. Has that been said already? No, no. Patterson wins. <laughs> we have got a tie. We have got a tie. Um, so uh, the other the other clues are going to be uh, the, the former French colony. Eighty percent of it is in the Sahara, and the final clue was going to be the capital is Algiers, which would have given it away quite dramatically. Uh, right. So. I'm going to stay with Algeria for our tie-break question. And the closest wins here. So to decide the winner of this week, I would like to know what you think the highest ever temperature recorded in Algeria was. Bearing in mind that Algeria is, eight, well, 80% of it is in the Sahara Desert. That's a desert with one S, not two. Do we want yes. Celsius or, or Fahrenheit here? Uh, Celsius, please, because we are not Neanderthals and we are not in America. They very, could be linked. Very good. Mr. Eichelstam, as reigning champion, I believe that you should go first. Um, 
53 degrees Celsius. 53 degrees Celsius. That seems very hot. Mr. Patterson. Wait, you think 50 odd? Oh, I was going to go 72. Whoa! <laughs> Is that really hot? I don't know. Uh, Mr. DeSalvet. 48. Ooh. Right. And the winner by one degree, the hottest ever temperature recorded in Algeria was 51 degrees Celsius. And Mr. Eichelstein retains his title on the tiebreak. Well done, Mr. Eichelstein. That was a close uh, run thing. Yeah, good game this week, guys. Good game. And see you all next week for Mysterious Country. Ooh, mysterious Country. No, I can't stop until you are right. Okay, that brings us to the end of part two. We'll return in just a few seconds with part three. Okay, welcome back to uh, part three. Uh, now, today we are going to be talking about a topic that in, in history that is very much linked to what year 10 GCSE students are currently working on. In the last few weeks, um, GCSE history students have been looking at Elizabethan England. Uh, we talked about the topic a few weeks ago on episode one in the pod. And so they've been looking at the religious settlement. They've been looking at kind of uh, the impact on Catholics and Puritans. But next week, they'll be turning their attentions to a particularly interesting, intriguing, enigmatic figure, a person who has such a huge impact on the period, uh, Mary, Queen of Scots. And we're fortunate enough to have a real Scotsman in the building to actually talk to us about this marvellous uh, figure. So, Mr. Patterson, you're going to give us a bit of a profile, uh, particularly starting off on her early life and her time as Queen of Scots in Scotland. I'll let you take it away. Yeah, so Mary is um, she's an unbelievably interesting figure. Um, she becomes queen um, really at just like a week old. Um, she's born in 1542, while her dad, James V, is away fighting the English. Um, and the sort of the day James gets the news that she's been born, um, he dies in maybe of shock, maybe of a fever, um, after losing a really big battle to the English. So literally her entire life, pretty much, um, she is a queen. Now, obviously, you can't have a country run by a sort of eight-year-old child. Um, so Mary's mum runs the country for her. Um, so Mary's mum is kind of in charge of Scotland while Mary is growing up. Um, and at the age of five, in order to get an alliance with the French, Mary's mum sends her off to France to get married to the French prince, um, Francis, uh, also known as the Dauphin, the man who will one day be king of France. Now, he is three years old and Mary is five, and they're sent to sort of live together, to sort of get to know each other. Um, and she spends kind of the rest of her sort of childhood in France. So it's worth it's sort of worth remembering that she's Mary Queen of Scots, but she would have sort of spoken with a French accent. Her sort of really her first language would have been French, and she loves it in France. She is incredibly popular in France. She kind of grows up to be this sort of very um, beautiful, very regal, very um, sort of charming and kind of loved child. Along with her four friends, she kind of brings four Scottish girls with her who are all also called Mary. So she has this sort of gang of Marys running around. But she's hugely popular in France. Now, France as a kingdom is 
way richer than Scotland, way grander than Scotland. Everything is kind of more beautiful in France. So she grows up in this um, sort of very opulent and very kind of stunning uh, atmosphere. Importantly as well, though, France is very firmly Catholic and Scotland is quite different to that. Scotland is still kind of grappling with Catholics versus Protestants. So Mary grows up in a part of the world that is very firmly Catholic, and she herself is Catholic. She does eventually become Queen of France. She gets married to Francis, her husband. Apparently they got on really well. He was short, kind of ugly, um, had a stutter. She was tall, very tall apparently, um, almost sort of six foot, kind of the top end of five foot, which was very tall for a woman in the kind of 1500s. She was charming, whereas he was kind of a bit of an oaf. But apparently they got on really well and it was a very kind of happy marriage. Unfortunately, he dies and he gets an ear infection, strangely, and dies. So she's Queen of France for about a year. And when her husband dies, she comes back to Scotland. So by this stage, she's kind of in her late teens. And she comes back to Scotland to become Queen of Scotland properly, to actually rule the kingdom. And she comes, she brings with her all this glamour, all this kind of beauty, all this kind of Catholic stuff to a country that really isn't used to this at all. Scotland is split, very firmly split between the Catholics on one side, um, who the Queen kind of represents, and the Protestants on the other side, uh, represented by people like the Earl of Moray and John Knox. Now, it's worth noting Scottish Protestants are kind of like even more extreme versions of Puritans. This idea of Presbyterianism, it's called. John Knox was so sort of extreme that he believed that church bells were sinful, so they removed all the church bells in Scotland and things like that. What you have is Mary returning. She is she's a Catholic monarch, and we see in England, obviously, because that's what obviously our year ten students have been studying, is that the country, by and large, sort of follows the religion of the monarch within reason. Obviously, there are kind of um, even though there are significant numbers of Catholics, we see by and large the majority following the rules in terms of Elizabeth. It doesn't feel the same in Scotland. It doesn't seem to be the same level of respect for the monarch's religion, or is it because Mary doesn't try and enforce it? Um, it's a bit of both. I mean, traditionally, Scottish royalty have always had a lot less power than uh, English royalty, for example. Scottish noblemen are much more likely to fight against their kings. I mean, if you look at Mary's um, kind of grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, several of them are killed and murdered by their own subjects. So Scottish kings and queens tend to have a lot less kind of respect, possibly, than English kings and queens. But also, Mary, um, Mary tries her best to sort of do what Elizabeth does. She promotes some Catholics and she promotes some Protestants. She sort of personally is Catholic, but she doesn't try and force anyone else to become Catholic. Um, Unfortunately for her, most of the powerful noblemen in Scotland are Protestant. So she has a really hard kind of situation when she comes back to Scotland trying to juggle all these groups and trying to keep everyone happy. It doesn't help that John Knox, this sort of very famous Protestant leader, is also unbelievably sexist and thinks that it is a sin for women to lead and thinks that um, any man listening to a woman is committing a sin against God. So she's having to deal with that as well. Elizabeth has to deal with that, but she doesn't have anyone quite as sort of extreme as John Knox to deal with, whereas Mary's having to handle this guy. And one of the ways she tries to handle these things is through marriage. Huge difference between Mary and Elizabeth. 
Elizabeth never wants to get married. Mary is very much sort of in love with being in love. She has several husbands throughout her life. Her first one, Francis, very happy marriage. Unfortunately, he dies. When she comes back to Scotland, she decides she will marry a man called Lord Darnley. Now, Darnley is a Catholic, but he's quite a sort of well-respected nobleman initially. Um, but their marriage, unfortunately, is very, very unhappy. Darnley is an incredibly sort of abusive husband. Um, at one point, he thinks that Mary's having an affair with her favourite secretary. Um, there's no evidence that she is. But he bursts in while they're having dinner together and sort of brutally murders Mary's secretary right in front of her. Mary, at this stage, is quite heavily pregnant. Um, so that gives you a kind of idea of what type of man Lord Darnley was. Now, he meets a pretty bad end. Darnley's house explodes in Edinburgh and he is found dead in the garden. Um, but importantly, he has no wounds on him. So um, it doesn't seem like he has died in the explosion. There's no sign that he was sort of killed in this explosion. And also some accounts talk about there being like a sword on the ground or a dagger on the ground next to him. It looked like he'd been sort of choked to death or smothered to death or something. So Mary immediately, people in Scotland begin to suspect, oh my God, she's killed her husband. Now for lots of the Protestant noblemen, not only is she a woman, not only is she a Catholic, but she's also possibly murdered her husband. And for many of them, they start to think, it's time to get rid of this woman. It's time to kick her out. It gets even worse. She marries again, a third time, um, the Earl of Bothwell, who people, most people think probably organised the murder of Lord Darnley, her second husband. So this just adds even more kind of fuel to the fire. And again, unfortunately for Mary, this is another really sad kind of marriage. Bothwell, probably there's lots of reports of her being in, him being incredibly violent towards Mary, but he is hated in Scotland. And her marriage to Bothwell is really the final straw. The noblemen of Scotland rise up, arrest Mary, force her to resign as queen. She has to um, give up her kind of queenship. Um, the word is abdicate. And uh, she's replaced by her one-year-old son, King James, uh, who's later, well, actually, I won't tell you what he later becomes. You'll find out. Um, and she's arrested. Bothwell manages to escape Scotland, but ends up dying in a sort of insane asylum in Europe, having been driven insane by drink and kind of um, regret. So it's a pretty tragic story for everyone. Mary, however, is able to escape. She's able to break out of prison, apparently by seducing one of her guards, which um, is one of the stories sort of, she's often described as being quite a kind of seductive, um, flirtatious person. But she's able to escape and she escapes into England. Do you think this um, idea of her being seductive and all of that is maybe down to the narrative that's written by the historians at the time because of the inherent sexism within society? Because, like, to be seductive and, like, like saying, like, because the idea of seduction and all that from a historical point of view almost comes to a magical sort of property. It's almost like witchcraft in a way. So is it that idea of, is it kind of slightly undermining, like, like if she's if she's out, got through life with seduction, with using this power, this hold over men, which is different? Is is this kind of a little stab at her in a way? Yeah, definitely. But it's kind of it's a bit of both. So all the sources that really like Mary, particularly the sort of French sources, they all describe her as being really flirtatious and really kind of um, 
just this this beautiful kind of incredibly charismatic woman so both sides talk about it so it must have been a part of her character now the negative sources make it seem like she's sleeping with absolutely everyone lots of the protestant sources describe her as basically being like a prostitute part of it as well might just be comparing her to elizabeth elizabeth is the virgin queen and then you've got mary who is this kind of super sexualized person and really i think we will talk about this a bit more next week kind of comparing her to elizabeth but they're this amazing kind of venn diagram where they've got so much in similar uh, so much sort of similarities between the two of them and yet they are somehow polar opposites of each other as well it's really amazing that these two exist at the same time in terms of that kind of you know this is the 16th century and you've got a, you know 20 30 40 year period of british history which is hugely impacted by the actions the policies the beliefs of two very powerful women and you know what we haven't really mentioned at all here and what we're going to explore next week is the fact that mary queen of scots was also first in line you know to the english throne which is bubbling up in the background all along here while she is on the scottish throne and let's not forget she uh, ends up escaping to england in uh, 1568 she's not even 30 years old She's already been married three times. She's already had a child. She's been through so much. And she's now essentially in a position where she's on the run, running for her life almost, and willing to do almost anything to potentially try and get back her throne in Scotland. And maybe, just maybe, get hold of the throne in England as well. Uh, so we'll leave it there, I think, this week. And we'll return next week with a, a chat about Mary once she gets to England and what happens when she arrives and what Elizabeth decides to do with her. Okay, so that brings us to the end of part three. Uh, we'll return in just a few seconds with part four. Okay, welcome back to part four. It's time for a little bit of Geography Corner. Hi guys, so uh, this week in Geography Corner, I'm going to take a fresh approach to it. And this is going to be the first of three parts centred around global inequality and its governance. So the first week, I'll give you some general background information before next week, moving on to looking at some global examples before in the third part, returning a little bit close to home and having a look at inequality within the UK. So like with any fresh topic that we start, Inequality and global inequality and governance are terms that we need to uh, come to terms with. So um, when we say global, we obviously mean the world. When we say inequality, um, obviously equality means everybody has the same access to things. Everybody has the same. Inequality means that people don't have the same things. And generally, when we look at in this term, we're thinking of economic inequality and this is largely due to the world system being based upon capitalism and that means that generally our bias leans towards this economic basis and valuing of the world and when we talk about governance if you think of the word government um, governance refers to the management of um, the world systems that are in place so to help provide us with this general um, context i'm going to go through some of the basics now um, we've got two main aspects of the world to consider here. We've got the global north, which are economically wealthy, and we've got the global south, who are economically poor. Um, we don't want to get into terms like third world, second world, first world. These are very much terms of the 1970s, terms that our parents and our grandparents would have been educated on, and really today are so outdated. And if you do hear journalists using them, um, 
they are so far behind the times it is untrue and it's quite worrying if you're hearing that from somebody who's been paid to produce content. Now, when we think of the global north and global south, we are not referring to the geographic north or south in terms of the hemisphere. Um, the northern hemisphere uh, geographically has got more land upon it than the southern hemisphere anyway. So that means that we have a disproportionate representation of countries and populations. Um, so what we mean by the global north and the global south we probably first really defined quite simply for us by a guy called Mr Brandt in the 1970s and those of you who've studied um, GCSE geography already all the way through will know that uh, this line pretty much goes round um, the United States of America, uh, it goes to the Mediterranean uh, Ocean, goes around the bottom border of uh, Russia and then loops awkwardly down and around Australasia as uh, that is included. And even then there are still some anomalies like South Africa, which uh, given by the definition that's been used to draw on that line would, should actually be included in the global north, but it isn't. Now, that's the way that we're gonna break up the world. And I feel like I should introduce you to the major players. Um, the major players or stakeholders are the ones that have the biggest say on this um, divide of inequality in terms of economic sense. And we've got the World Bank, um, the International Monetary Fund, otherwise known as the uh, IMF, and the World Trade Organization, which uh, becomes the WTO, its acronym city here. Um, and the, the latest one to actually be developed is one that's been in the news a lot in regards to our leaving of the European Union through Brexit, uh, the World Trade Organization, which was only established fully by 1995. And if we were to leave without a deal, we would fall underneath their generic rules uh, when we leave. Um, now, these three organizations um, actually form part of a little group known as the Washington Consensus. Now, for those of you that don't know, by Washington, it means Washington, D.C., not Washington State in the United States of America. And that shows you where they are centered and focused um, in terms of um, their their power and feeling in relationship to the rest of the world. Now, um, all three of these should be working together to try and create an equal flow of resources and money around the world and help to provide the structure and the systems in which they can take place. All of them are self-proclaimed democratic bodies, but as I've said, they're known as a Washington Consensus. Um, these organizations were set up by the Global North and they often act on behalf of the global north and at least two of them have got the united states of america with the power to veto any final decisions uh, very late on which gives their them um, an unequal um democratic right inside these organizations and starts to begin the inequality that we see so when we think of uh, inequality in in global terms. If you listen to the um, United Nations and the World Bank, it's a really positive situation that we've ended up in the last 15 years. Um, the, the inequality has been reduced globally um, in line with the Millennium Development Goals established in the year 2000. Um, sadly, uh, people who uh, fit into this area of poverty, as they would describe it, um, well, the amount of people is 700 million to a billion people on the planet. And we're a population of, at the moment around 7.7 .7 billion, according to the latest uh, UN statistics. Um, we're going to start using the word million and billion a few times over the next couple of weeks. So let's just make sure we know what that means. Um, if we were to count to a million and a million 
uh, and each number we could just say in one second, uh, it would take us to 11 and a half days to count to a million. If we were to count to a billion, it would take us 32 years if each number only took a second. But um, obviously, if you try and say, um, I don't know, uh, 273,999,000, it takes longer than a second. So even if we just condense it down and put it into a second's worth of time, it would take us 32 years to get to a billion. So it sounds quite positive that we're reducing this number. It's still a large amount of people. However, we've got to consider that the UN and the World Bank are measuring this on a poverty line of $1.25 a day. That is people living with $1.25. Scholars and uh, academics, and quite frankly, anybody with half a brain cell, can see that $1.25 is not enough to live on a day. That is $1.25 to try and get an acceptable life expectancy. Um, we've just been hearing about... Um, Mary Queen of Scots and uh, she was 30 and she'd already achieved all this by the time she was alive at that period in the UK the average life expectancy was only 39 years or so like that so she was actually three quarters of the way through what she should expect as her life at that point um, so in the modern day terms our maximum life expectancy on the planet is around 82 and that's in Japan so um, for and life expectancy on a dollar twenty-five a day like that, you won't get it. And people living beyond the age of five, infant mortality rate uh, being low, you need a lot more than a dollar twenty-five. And when you start to figure it out, people have actually calculated it's more like five dollars a day. Um, and this is seen as the ethical or moral poverty line. Instead, this is not what the World Bank uses. And actually, when we start to use that figure, we've got four billion people. Um, living in poverty on the planet, and that's around 60%, or well, just under, the, above 50% of our global population. Yeah, why do you think then? So they have this $1.25 as their kind of marker for mm. classing poverty, the poverty line. Why do you think it's so low? Is it just a uh, way of, kind of playing the, statistics, the figures a bit, or am I being too cynical? Um, you're right to be cynical, but at the same time, um, I'll tell you uh, why that statistics been being used in a second in relation to something else. But um, a dollar twenty-five has been seen because a dollar a day it, it was a, largely in fashion when the terms first and second and third world came along, and third world was often considered to be of uh, people tend to hop back to like the Live Aid concerts and things like that. Though, and we have a famine, the AIDS crisis uh, sweeping across Africa in places like Ethiopia. And those images are so visceral and they stick in people's heads about people living in extreme poverty. And often people would lazily refer to these people living on less than a dollar a day. So they kind of made it seem more legitimate by calling it a dollar 25. So it's like, oh, we've calculated like that's a, a statistic that you need to reach to be, be alive in that way. Really, it's been plucked out of the air. And if you wanted to be cynical, the statisticians probably proved that you could show that this figure was going down quite easily to earn a dollar twenty-five a day in any country is quite straightforward. So to have the line moving in a positive direction and seem like you're doing a good thing, like the World Bank and the IMF and trying to encourage equality around the world with the global economic system, you can show that you're doing that with a statistic like a dollar twenty-five and that limit being set. Now, that four billion people living on five dollars a day, this ethical and moral um, uh, bar that we should set, is actually growing. 
um, that number has not been reduced. It's actually growing all the time. Uh, the largest population growth is seen in areas where we have the most poverty on the planet. If we were to consider the dollar twenty-five statistic, which is the positive one, and yay, less people are living on less than a dollar twenty-five. If you only remove China and a couple of selected Southeast Asian countries like Indonesia, actually that number's not getting any better either. So the reduction in poverty at that scale is not happening. Uh, China's economic growth is uh, unbelievable. It's been at rates above 9%, which since um, capitalism has been churning along quite nicely on the planet, no other country has seen these growth, that sort of levels of growth ever. And um, at the moment we're entering the big slowdown, which is something I'll probably get onto in a few weeks. And uh, that may actually prove to be better for equality. And it's also worth noticing that um, China stayed well outside of the Washington consensus and the West's economic growth. And yet they seem to have reduced inequality the most. Strange, isn't it? Just to fi finish on today, um, because this gives you a little bit of a back background of just generally inequality around the planet. The global north and the global south, if you want to think, well, the global north, we do a lot to help um, these people in the global south. Uh, actually, we do, we spend a lot of money, uh, around $130 billion worth of aid. And the reason why I use dollars is dollars is international uh, currency for those of you who think, why don't I use pounds? Um, $130 billion worth of aid gets sent from the north to the south every year. That's more than actually the entire of the US's banking systems profits every year. So they're the largest economy in the world. So it makes sense to refer to them. Um, yet when we actually look at the flow overall of capital or money around for every one dollar that's sent towards the global south from the north the north receives back 24 dollars so the inequality of the flows of capital around the planet is insane um so for every bit of financial aid that goes down that one dollar and uh, the global north actually sees 24 dollars worth of wealth come back it's a pretty bleak picture in terms of global inequality, uh, in terms of this economic basis. And next week, we'll have a look at some examples of this. And I'll be going to the place that most of you probably think of when we think of poverty, and that's at the continent of Africa. And we'll start there. Fantastic, Mr. Lawton. This week, nestled in Geography Corner, uh, we find ourselves returning for another little 90 second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90. How long do we have? 90. How long do we need? How long do we need? 90. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. What a challenge. What a challenge. Okay, so this week's 90 second challenge was set uh, last week um, by Mr. Lawton. Mr. Lawton, could you uh, just remind us what the challenge was, what you'd asked Mr. Patterson to talk about? Yeah, so um, I went for quite a, a, a broad topic so that Mr. Patterson could as much as he wanted to and it was in relation to seismic hazards seismic hazards are being more commonly referred to as earthquakes but uh, i'm looking forward to this yeah so the rules are with the 90 second challenge is that one of our four teachers has just one minute and 30 seconds 90 seconds to say as much as they possibly can to explain this topic in as simple terms as they possibly can and then they'll be judged by their expert on the podcast so mr lawton will be kind of listening in and thinking uh, and uh, judging what mr patterson has to say afterwards then mr patterson will be setting a new challenge to mr de salvo so mr patterson are you ready 
I think so, yeah. Fantastic. So, on your marks, get set, go. So, seismic activity. Um, well, seismic activity, as Mr Lawton said, is essentially earthquakes. Um, and uh, every part of the world has different sort of levels of seismic activity and you can measure it by the frequency of these earthquakes, the size of these earthquakes and the different types of earthquakes that are happening. Um, there are four big causes of seismic activity, I believe, and these include volcanic eruptions, um, the movement of tectonic plates, the earth is tectonic plates that we kind of live on, I guess, uh, three geological faults, so fault lines in these tectonic plates, for example the San Andreas Fault in California, which is why they have so many earthquakes in that part of the world, and finally, man-made causes, so things like fracking for gas and, um, I'm assuming, different types of like mining. Um, earthquakes, they are happen fairly often. The biggest one, we've only really measured their size since 1900, so they've probably been bigger, but in 1960, there was a Chilean earthquake, which was the largest ever recorded. It destroyed around 2 million homes in Chile, but more people died um, across the ocean in the Philippines, where 35 feet high tidal waves traveling at 200 miles an hour traveled across the ocean and crashed into the Philippines, killing many more people than the earthquake actually did. Right, so it's the end of the 90 second challenge. Uh, I think that was quite impressive, as in, you know, as somebody knows next to nothing about geography. Um, Mr. Lawton, what do you think? So, yeah, I, I thought it was really good. I thought it was uh, nice and contained. That you've got the main main causes of it in there. A little bit gutted about how we actually measure it in there. Maybe the frequency or what like makes a seismic hazard more have more of a profound effect on an area. Yeah, uh, that would would have been would have been nice. But no, it was lovely. But very good from a from a historian's point of view. Um, so it's this, it's the time of uh, the show now where Mr. Patterson, after subjecting himself or being subjected, I should say, to the 90 second challenge, he now has the right and the privilege to uh, subject Mr. DeSalvo. So it's Mr. DeSalvo's turn this week because it's not my turn because Mr. Uh, Mr. Patterson couldn't give me a history topic to go away and do. That'd be probably slightly unfair. So Mr. DeSalvo will be getting some form of historical topic to research and revise for next week's show. Mr. Patterson, what have you got in mind without giving too much away, obviously? So, Mr. DeSalvo, a topic very close to my heart. Um, I would like you to please research and report back on the amazing story of Greyfriars Bobby. Lovely. I might have to message you privately to ask how you spell this. Does that ring any bells initially, Mr. DeSalvo? Nope. Just um, nothing at all. I did not study history. Well, to be honest with you, Greyfriars Bobby never turned up in any of my history lessons. He may have turned up in Mr. Patterson's. That's a slight clue, I suppose. But um, yeah, he's not someone I knew much about when I was when I was growing up. Well, I'm sure by next week you will all know a lot more about this. Right. So that brings us to an end to part four. That was the 90 second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90. How long do we need? How long do we need? 90. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. What a challenge. What a challenge. And that brings us to an end to part four. We'll return in just a few seconds with part five.
Okay, welcome back to part five. It is the language liaison time of the week. Mr. DeSalvo loves the uh, the name of this part. I'm, I, I can tell by the tone of his voice and the look, at, look in his eye. So, uh, Mr. DeSalvo, what have you got for us this week? Um, as with my classes, we're kind of finishing the um, unit on um, customs and festivals. I thought I'd finish off with some cultural um, elements linked to this. And I wanted to bring in um, stereotypes today and their origins, because I think we all, you know, refer to, well, we can all think of some uh, French or Spanish stereotypes. Actually, Mr. Patterson, a French stereotype is? French stereotype, uh, blue stripy top and cloves of garlic. Thank you, yes, okay. Um, actually, I will be talking about this particular one today, and Mr. Lawton for a Spanish one. They love salsa. They love salsa, yes. <laughs> you mean flamenco, but yes, probably also salsa in Mexico. Or oh, you mean Mexican salsa, I don't know. Anyway, don't worry about that. Um, so I'm going to start with the French stereotype that we know the most. And like Mr. Patterson said, you know, it is the, you know, classical image of wearing, the, wearing a beret, riding, you know, a bike with um, onions uh, on the side and wearing a, you know, striped um, shirt. So the reason why we have this image has actually got um, some reasons. Anyone knows in the audience? Do they grow a lot of garlic in France? Is that something that the French the French do? I mean, no, actually, I mean they do consume a fair amount of um, garlic, but um, I think it's kind of um, it, it stops there with the garlic. Miss um, Lawton, is, is, is it not because the French really hate vampires? Um, not what I found, I'm afraid. <laughs> right, so um, the origin of the stereotype that sees you know French people wearing a beret riding a bike with onions on the um, handlers uh, handlebars sorry is that um, in um, Brittany which is in the north part of France actually there are some special pink onions so they're quite clear in colour and probably people mistake them for garlic actually and I think there's a bit of a I, I just said garlic then so it's it's not garlic it's it's onions and no there are references to them uh, what well, to the French uh, consuming quite a lot of garlic there is I think the garlic reference is to do with the garlic consumption and then there's the image of them having onions as well I, don't no, know I can't even get my stereotypes right <laughs> both are equally valid but basically in Brittany northern France they grow special pink onions um, which are very sweet and they have a very long storage life and what happened is in 1828 um, a French well more than one French um, man from Brittany decided to set off on a trip to the UK and um, to sell these uh, pink onions and what happened was because they preserve for so long and they would spend quite an amount of time, like generally summer months in the UK, basically sleeping in depot, uh, containing, you know, these onions and basically delivering them, trying to sell them door to door to, you know, the British con consumers who really appreciated um, apparently, you know, this delicacy. And the issue was that their daily um, amount of onions to sell was quite large and some of these people had um, about 45 kilograms of onions at the start of the day, which was, you know, quite a big amount to carry around. And it was only in the 1930s when bikes were introduced that 
Frenchmen selling these pink onions started using bikes, so they had to balance them um, on the handlebars. And I think this is why now a lot of the time we picture them on bikes and, um, you know, with onions on the sides. The berets uh, basically um, uh, generates from um, the regions, so a couple of regions in France where it gets colder, obviously in the rural areas, and mainly women actually wear a beret. Um, but they're not particularly common these days. It was more of a fashion kind of campaign, really, that saw a lot of actresses um, in the, well, in the last century, let's say, wearing them. So that, you know, people start associating French people to wearing beret. And the other item that we often picture French people in is the um, famous striped shirt. And it's usually made of jersey and it has to do with the sailor's uniform. Um, it kind of became a fashion statement because at the beginning of the 20th century and uh, due to the First World War, um, it was difficult to uh, find this type of clothing um, and therefore um, Coco Chanel actually adopted it during this time when it was difficult to find it and um, decided to um, basically adapt it and they started designing um, his own garments, sorry, her own garments in, you know, in this um, new style and then designers around the world borrowed it and uh, it was made famous by um, Jean-Paul Gaultier who then decided to give you know the stripy look to all of his products including fragrances etc and that's why we now um, I guess have this image of French people and the second and last and a bit shorter uh, stereotype I've got for you today is about Spanish people taking a siesta anyone knows any of this well, I'm aware of Spanish oh. people taking siestas, but I don't, I don't know uh, why. I mean, my guess is it something to do with the climate and, and, and you know, taking a rest in the day when it, the, 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 you know, it's, it's warmest? Partly, um, but um, it basically does, I mean, it does um, line up with the fact that obviously it is hotter during that time of the day. Uh, the word siesta comes from Latin, uh, from the word sexta, which means the sixth hour of the day. Romans, as you historians know, um, divided periods of light into 12 hours. Um, so the sixth hour normally corresponded to 1pm or 3pm during the summer. And what happened is that because of the Spanish working day being split in two parts, from 9 to 12 and then from 2 to 8, and that hour um, was then dedicated to basically you know, resting. You said, Mr. Arkham, about, you know, the temperature, and that makes sense. Um, but also because um, the working hours the Spanish people have are different, um, it allows, obviously, an opportunity to spend the sixth hour, the end of that period of six hours, um, actually sleeping and resting. But also, post-Civil War um, in Spain, many people worked two jobs one in the morning and one in the afternoon to support the families. So actually having a longer break allowed people to go home, get even changed, or actually traveling from one workplace to the other, um, which then kind of allowed time for, for that rest that now has become a siesta. Um, it is obviously less and less common these days, and especially after the 1980s when a lot of people migrated to the cities. So, um, 
basically the working hours changed there and they're a bit more similar to what we experience in the UK. I suppose that's the end of the language liaison for this week. Thank you very much, Mr. DeSalvo. Um, I certainly learned uh, not to stereotype people and to uh, try and treat people eat all as individuals. So uh, that brings us to the end of uh, part five and we'll be back in just a few seconds with uh, the final part. Welcome back to the final part of the HD Lockdown pod. Um, Thank you very much for a few questions and comments you've sent in this week. Do keep them coming. If there's any questions you have about any of the work you've been doing or just anything in general that you want to share with us, please do. We've had, as ever, I'm sorry to say, Mr. DeSalvo, another request, this time from Alfie, for a musical episode this time, but wanting you to take the lead role in this musical episode. So, I mean, you know, give the people what they want. That's all I can. Can you hear the people sing? That's what he wants. Is this the same song that um, was requested by Christian? Or no, no, this is not. No, this is another voice adding to the clamour for you to uh, perform. They can obviously they, they they sense that you've got this in you. Sure. Um, perhaps towards the end of this podcast project, yes. Uh, if there is anything particular they want me to perform, please, you know, let well, me know. Look, the request is there. I mean, we'll just have to have to wait and see, Alfie. I'll keep trying. And uh, every week I'll keep posing the questions. Mr. Lawton could accompany the singing with his trombone. Maybe we could make it happen. I mean, we've already got a sense that there's talent, hidden talent in there with the, uh, the old mysterious country uh, lyrics, not to give too much away. But so, you know, it's, it's possible. It could be that, like the same thing as those celebrities did recently, the, um, you know, I don't know, Lady Gaga was in this. The One World Together at Home concert when everyone was oh, doing their own little performances. Yes. I'm looking forward to Mr. Lawton giving us, uh, giving us a little something uh, sometime soon. Another question uh, this week as well, a very quick one. If you could rule any country and rename it, which would you uh, choose and why? Uh, Mr. Patterson. Uh, I would go for, I loved, so last week I talked about how much I loved the Romans. I loved all their names for old countries. So like they used to call Scotland um, Caledonia. Um, but I think their name for France was fantastic, Gaul. So I would take charge of France with all their white onions and stripy t-shirts and change the name to Gaul. Mr Lawton? Um, I would go for Russia because of Mackinder's Heartland theory. If you rule the world island, which is essentially Russia, you can rule the world. And uh, I would rename it to uh, Lotistan. Yeah, okay, very good. We've got another comment as well. Someone who can't stop laughing at the singing voice of the theme tune for Mysterious Country. Now, I, I don't know if this is a compliment or they are actually just, 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 just taking the mick. Uh, I'll let you guys decide. And that same person, Nathaniel, is also requested, can students be involved in Mysterious Country? Mr Lawton? Um, well, obviously, you can play along at home anytime and you see whether you can beat the teachers to the... Uh... To the actual correct guess but at the at the same time um with the hd lockdown quiz that's coming up there is potential maybe for a, a mysterious country uh kind of round being put in there and i'll see whether i can do that for us let us get through the first one and then i'll maybe include it in the second one. so we'll look forward to that one um and finally today we've had an interesting question in it's what was the geography of elizabethan england so obviously this is the HD Lockdown pod. We've got a bit of languages, geography, 
history, uh, citizenship all in together. And this question's combined a bit of geography and a little bit of history, asking kind of what was it like, essentially, geographically, I suppose, in England during the 16th century? I, I'm just going to jump in and say that this question feels like it, it means geographically from a more physical point of view but we've got to remember that when we talk about geography we're talking about the human and the physical interrelationship yeah and I, I was going to say a few things and if you mr lawn could jump in and kind of mm. correct almost is this geography am i saying kind of the stuff that should fall under the bag? everything's geography well i think one of the first things you've got to note when you look at the when you look at the sort of maps i suppose which you kind of jump to maybe first when you think about geography apologies, is you think about um, cartography. And actually, at the time, the making of maps was incredibly impressive. Some of the maps that were produced in the 16th century, they look exactly like you would expect to see the British Isles um, at the time. And there was quite a famous uh, cartographer, map maker by the name of John Speed, who um, was actually, Queen Elizabeth was one of his patrons and would actually employ him to create, produce maps of England, Wales, uh, so of the British Isles, essentially, um, on a regular basis. At the time, of course, there was no such thing as the United Kingdom. So in terms of when we're thinking about um, independent states and nation states and so on, uh, Wales had been pretty much absorbed into England. So it was almost like England West to a certain degree. It was just like another county. It held very little actual um, power within the kingdom. Um, Scotland was very much an independent kingdom. Uh, Mr. Patterson's cheering in the background, though you might not be able to hear him. And Ireland was this kind of mixture of there was some kind of English control around Dublin, um, but there was also large parts of Ireland that were sort of difficult to keep keep uh, controlled by the English English monarchs, uh, where Irish lords uh, held held sway. England was largely rural at this time. Uh, a huge emphasis was on agriculture I mean, and some people have a, a myth kind of an idea that there were these great forests uh, that kind of cr across the entire uh, entire country at this time but this is not true i mean a lot of the country the forests have been chopped down for uh, that very purpose of, of farming towns are much smaller uh, most of the largest towns in the country besides london obviously were around 10 or fifteen thousand people uh, and towns that you wouldn't necessarily expect places like Norwich, places like Bristol. Those towns were very much individual too. So London City was London, it was tiny. The urban sprawl and the spread through urbanisation of interconnected towns had very much not happened. A bit like in Birmingham, um, you wouldn't have, Birmingham would have been the smaller town to, uh, to small heath in this area. That would have been a lot larger. And that would have been completely separate. And this is obviously before the Industrial Revolution, places like Birmingham, places like Manchester, places like Liverpool, were complete non-entities really when you could in terms of the nation at the time england was very much centered around the south and the southeast the north was very difficult to access due to limitations in terms of transport in terms of roads um the queen herself never went any further north than kind of like warwickshire really so the north of england you know your manchesters and so on going up towards newcastle were cut off they were seen like a very distant and remote part of the part of the part of the country um scotland of course uh, even further away even more remote the best way to get around at the time was was sea travel, um, essentially, uh, because if you wanted to go from Newcastle to London, the best way was to do it by boat. Roads were most of them uh, impassable uh, due to like weather and that kind of thing. There was no paved roads in the 16th century. Most urban areas 
that were larger that were inland could only be accessed via estuary so ships would have to be able to navigate down and they had to be quite wide so think of somewhere like london it's not too close to the seaside but um you go down the estuary and you can get to the traditional city of london it's one of the main reasons why in africa resources weren't exploited as quickly as they could have been by the colonial powers because the ships couldn't navigate the rivers there are an awful lot of waterfalls if you get a little bit down the river systems in africa and that stopped and prevented them quite a bit yeah i mean it is interesting isn't it to think about the different kind of what uh, the country would have looked like the country that we're kind of more we're familiar with today would have looked like what kind of things would have remained the same what could have, kind of things would be different i mean i think that the, one of the biggest thing would be that the urban areas being being incredibly small but they are increasing i mean england goes from a population at the start of queen elizabeth's reign of around about two and a half million up to four million that's a huge huge increase one of the biggest kind of increases in population that we see in england i believe in such a short space of time if we think about uh, the de demographics at that point as well, in terms of not just the, the sheer size and development, but the urban areas and the urban planning that was going in, with very slapdash at that stage. So we talk about, to put it in the context of um, geography, we talk about slum areas developing. Um, this would have been very much the case inside the UK as well at that time. You would have had makeshift houses being put into place on the outside of the urban areas quickly. Lack of sanitation and forward thinking there just in general. High infant mortality rates as a result. Uh, you would have had um, a large amount of the population being very happy to get past the age of five years old. It's a completely different time frame. And if we think about the um, demographic transition model that we have in geography, stage one, we attribute to Amazonian tribes only really in the world at the moment, but that's these high birth rates and high death rates canceling each other out. So when you're saying there's this um, great increase all of a sudden, that's probably because there were some developments in terms of nutrition um, or something like that within society that allowed that to happen. The challenges that would have created most of the ones that jump out of us are things like public health particularly and those of us that have studied a bit of medicine through time, a bit of uh, health and the people will know that you know during this time period ill health, plague, various diseases are a common part of life and a part of everyday life essentially and you know that's the kind of the almost the stereotypical sort of approach or idea we have of what it was like to live in you know the middle ages or you know the early renaissance as we're, as we're talking about here in terms of though i think it's worthwhile just mentioning finally i was asked about what the geography of elizabethan england was but i think englanders or people from you know europe essentially their idea their understanding their appreciation of wider world geography was starting to change this ties in with the age of discovery this time period we're seeing um, the americas um you know the caribbean islands north and south america being opened up being discovered for the first time and, and maps are starting to change whereas if you went back maybe 100 200 years people thought that if you went you know uh, west into the atlantic essentially they, you know, the idea of what was there was un very very unclear you know you'd have maps with monsters and, and, and weird beasties and creatures on the edge of them whereas now things were coming back from the americas you know uh, different foods potatoes tomatoes um, chocolate coffee tobacco and this was changing people's perception of geography of the world within which they lived the geography of the world was was also changing as was the geography uh, of england just to link it back to last week with the crusades um the first crusade that was really successful was um it's uh, so 13th century um they were actually that was actually largely based upon many of the common man wanting to kind of 
go and see and explore the world a little bit and signing up with our local uh local priest or local vicar to get them on side and say let's get going and have a look at the world and people were like yeah okay and that's the most that they ever saw they they were crossing uh, all the way around the Mediterranean and ending up in deserts and they had never seen anything like it up there from Wakefield and then ending up in a desert in the middle of the Crusades, absolutely mad. Yeah, so uh, this is a period of, we were very much in a bubble, but then they were just starting to see the rest of the world. Yeah, and that, and that, that, that sense of going on a pilgrimage, and that's one of the main reasons for traveling those days were, were religious reasons. And, you know, going on a pilgrimage to Compostela or to, to Jerusalem was an opportunity for people who had never before had a chance to see the world or to see what world they knew. Um, pilgrimages offered that and the Crusades would also be a thing for knights, uh, for soldiers and so on. Okay, uh, I think that brings us uh, to the end of episode four of the HD uh, lockdown pod. All I can do now is say a fond farewell to uh, Mr. DeSalvo as well. Hi. Mr. Patterson, farewell. See you later. And cheerio, Mr. Lawton. Cheerio, watch out for an email for the HD lockdown quiz, hopefully this Sunday at 7pm. Okay, guys, thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Come on, DeSalvo, give us mysterious country. Con la guitarra in mano, lasciatemi cantare.